This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. That being said, please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter. If you're new to the Bible, you can find 1 Peter by looking at the table of contents in the front of the Bible. If you do not have a Bible with you, we actually have extras that are on your way out. We'd love to be able to give you one, as we'd love everyone to have a copy of the Bible uh, for their own personal use. And so please take that on us. But we're in 1 Peter. We have been going through a series in this book. It's really exploring this one central theme. It's this idea that earth is not our home, but is only a place we are passing through on the way to our true home. What Peter's kind of telling us through this letter is that to be a Christian is to live on earth as an exile. And that's meant to change everything about how we think about our lives now. Last week we saw how there is tremendous hope that we can have as we live as exiles. Today we're going to see how there is joy that we can have in this life of exile. When the Bible speaks about joy, it's not talking about a temporary feeling of happiness that comes and goes, but rather the state of being content. The experience of being satisfied, of knowing that it is well with your soul. Our passage today is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, and it's really going to show us how we can experience joy in our lives, even as we grieve the hard things that we go through in our lives. This is not joy that takes away our sorrow, nor joy that negates our sorrow, but a joy that can occur simultaneously, even in the midst of sorrow. I want to prepare us to read this scripture by telling you a true story. A true story about a man named Horatio Spafford. In 1871, Horatio Spafford lost his entire business and life savings to the great Chicago fire. He was completely ruined and destitute. This was not the worst thing he had experienced in his life because only a few short months before, he had lost his two-year-old son who had untimely passed away from this earth. Sorrow compounded by sorrow. Seeking to make a new start, he booked a trip for him, his wife, and four daughters to go to Europe. Last minute, some business dealings came up that required him to stay behind for an additional week, but he still sent his wife and daughters on ahead. When crossing the Atlantic, their ship had a collision with another ship and sank to the bottom of the sea. Horatio received a telegram from his wife in London that had said only two words, saved alone. She had been saved alone as their four daughters had drowned. Sorrow compounded by sorrow, compounded by sorrow. A week later, Horatio got on a boat to go be with his wife, heartbroken, devastated, grieving. 
that as he passed over the Atlantic, following the same route that had taken the lives of his children, he penned these words that now make up a very famous hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My question is, how could he write those words? How could he be well with his soul in the midst of such profound grief? How can we be well with our souls in the midst of the sorrows that we can carry so heavily on our hearts? This passage today wants to help us answer that question. I'm going to tell this morning's sermons, exiles, joy in sorrow. Let's turn our attention to God's word, starting in verse 6 of chapter 1 of this letter written by Peter, through the Holy Spirit, for us. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Would you bow your head with me now as I breathe the word of prayer. Lord God, you inspired Peter to write these words to people living 2,000 years ago, but because they were inspired by you, you preserved them throughout time in history to minister to us today. We were just, just addressed by you. We just heard the voice of the living God as we read these words from this holy book. And so Lord, now I pray that you would help us to understand what you're saying. I pray that your Holy Spirit, which inspired these words, would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you. Lord, I pray for people today who need to be comforted, that they'd be comforted today by you. Lord, I pray for those of us who need to be prepared for the suffering we will endure, that today we'd be prepared by you. Lord, for those who do not know you, I pray today be the day that they are saved by faith in you. Lord, would you do this for the glory of your name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You'll notice that these verses that I read are bracketed by joy. Starts about saying, in this you rejoice, verse 6, and then in verse 8 it says, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. There is joy in this passage, and yet there's also grief. Verse 6 says, you have been grieved by various 
trials. What's important to understand about this is that both of these words in the original Greek in which they're written take place in the present tense. Meaning they're both things that were presently being experienced by these people at the same time. These people were deeply grieving. Not suppressing their emotions. Not pretending that everything is okay. No, they are lamenting the suffering that they were experiencing. Yet at the same time, they were rejoicing. They were experiencing a wholeness and wellness of their souls. Much like Horatio Spafford, they had joy in the midst of sorrow. How is that possible? Well, I think this passage says three things to us about how that is possible. And it really gives us these three things by giving us three concepts that can each be represented by a word. So let me give you, give you each of these words so that you know kind of where we're going. It can be well with our souls as we consider our prosperity, as we consider our perspective, as we consider a preciousness. So we're going to look at this morning, a prosperity, perspective, and preciousness. We're going to look at each of these in their turn. Um, and I just want to say this as we go through this sermon, it's always a, a challenge for a pastor to know how much of yourself to put into a sermon as you don't want to draw attention to yourself, but you also want to be helpfully illustrative. And so this sermon, uh, I'm going to share my heart a little bit, if that's okay. Because um, I don't know how to talk about pain uh, without being personal. And so I hope you will indulge me and I hope that serves you. We're going to look at the first part here, prosperity. Peter starts by saying, in this you rejoice. What is the this that he is talking about? Well, it's everything that he had gone over in the previous verses. It's everything we talked about last week. It is the reality that we are born into this world as part of Adam's bloodline of rebellion. He was our first parent who chose to reject the ways of God, and as his children, we all are born with that same tendency. We are born as part of the bloodline of Adam, living in rebellion to God, under the tyranny of God's enemy, Satan. And so even though we are born into this, we, we, we are born into this world, not as children of God, but as enemies to God, asserting our own way. But as we saw last week, God in his great mercy is not content to leave us that way. God in his great mercy causes us to be born again. Not because we have done anything to deserve it. No, just as a child contributes nothing to their birth, so too we contribute nothing to our spiritual rebirth. But God causes it by mercy, we are told. We become his children, and therefore as we become God's children, we become heirs to his inheritance. We will dwell with God forever in imperishable, undefiled, and unfading glory as we experience the fullness of the salvation that Jesus has accomplished. Because Jesus died on the cross in our place, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Our pardon has been granted because his blood was paid. Because Jesus died on the cross in our place, we are being saved from the power of sin. His cross breaks the power of sin in our lives, and now we can say yes to following his righteous ways. And because Jesus died on the cross in our place, we will be saved from the presence of sin when we come to dwell with God forever. See, in Jesus, we have been saved from sin's 
penalty, we are being saved from sin's power, and we will be saved from sin's presence, and in this we rejoice. Even though we can go through various kinds of trials. Being born again as God's child into the inheritance of Christ, salvation we have in him, oh, our salvation in Jesus does not spare us from sorrows. But it does give us a joy that no sorrow can take away. We might be deeply grieving, but we can also at the same time be deeply content in our souls. We can have joy as we see and savor the greatness of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, I believe in the prosperity gospel. Not a prosperity gospel that falsely promises me health, wealth, and happiness now, where I can just say the right kind of prayer, name it and claim it and get whatever I want. No, that kind of prosperity is nothing compared to the true prosperity that Jesus brings. We might not always have the best life now, But in Jesus, there are riches that we can experience that nothing on this life can touch. And that give us the promise of a better life to come. And so we are to live with understanding the prosperity of what we have in Jesus, even as we experience so much loss in this life. Makes me think about brothers Zoltz and Gaza Palazzi who were homeless in 2009, living in a cave in Budapest and scavenging for junk for a living. But that year, an attorney found them and told them that they had received an inheritance from a grandmother in Germany that they had never met. And the once penniless brothers received four billion pounds, or what would today be the equivalent of about five billion dollars. When they received that news, they were dressed in rags and struggling to survive. In Hungary, they were beggars. And the message of the attorneys was not, here's how to make your cave nicer in Hungary. No, their prosperity was not to be judged based upon what they had in Hungary, but the inheritance they'd received had come from Germany. Friends, in the same way, our prosperity is not to be based upon what we have here in this life, but the salvation that we have forever in Jesus Christ. Our prosperity in Christ is one that no stock market can crash. No thief could steal. No health diagnosis can change. No no job loss can threaten. No death can forfeit. We have a prosperity given to us in what Christ has done for us to forgive us of our sins, to free us from the power of sin, and to fully deliver us one day from this cursed world of sin. Oh, in this we can rejoice. Even as we grieve. Because the sorrows that we experience don't change the prosperity that we have in Christ. Don't judge your life based upon hungry, but based upon what Jesus has done. Germany. We have prosperity in Christ, friends. Not to be judged based upon what we have here, but because of all God has done for us in Jesus.
This first concept we need to understand. There is prosperity that we have in Christ that can give us joy in the midst of sorrow. Second, there is perspective that we can have in Christ that can give us joy in the midst of sorrow. Notice that Peter puts a time stamp on how long suffering will last. He says, you are grieved, but though for a little while. When I was younger and going in for a procedure for my Crohn's disease, I used to ask the doctor, how much does this hurt? I've since learned to stop asking doctors that question because they never tell the truth. <laughs> Although only oh, it hurts a little bit. And then like five minutes later, I'm like throwing up because of the pain, you know? It's like a little bit. Let me do that to you and show you a little bit, you know? I understand there's, they don't want to freak a you know, kid out, so they're trying to be nice. But, um, but, but actually, I found it to be more helpful over the years to be more aware of how painful these procedures are going to be and aware of how soon that pain will be over. I found it easier to, do, to deal with pain knowing that there is a definite end. Friends, what this passage is telling us is that all our pain here on this earth has a definite end. It exists. It does. No denying it. But it only exists for a little while. In other words, it only exists for a short duration of time. Now, when we are suffering, that certainly does not seem to be true. It certainly does not seem that things are only going on for a little while. I've been suffering with a chronic disease for 30 years. And let me tell you, it does not feel like a little while. It feels like most of my life. Lamenting the loss of multiple miscarriages are painful wounds that Angie and I will carry for the rest of our lives. We are comforted to know that we have children in heaven, but we mourn not being able to embrace them here on earth. Suffering certainly does not always seem like a little while, but it all depends on your perspective of time. I've been in Philly now for nine years. Compared to the rest of my life, that is a little while. However, for my daughter, that is almost all of her life, and for both my sons, that is all of their lives. Since I've been alive longer, since I've experienced more time passing, my perspective on my time here in Philly is different than theirs. See, a little while all depends on your perspective of time. When Peter says that their suffering is for a little while, he is not saying that their suffering is short compared to the life they're living. He is saying it is short compared to the life they're going to live. The Apostle Paul says something very similar when he writes to another suffering church in the city of Corinth. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For things that are seen are transient, but things that are unseen are eternal. You see what he's saying is compared to our eternal life where we'll live in the inheritance of our salvation in Christ forever. From that perspective, our suffering on this earth is only to be considered as momentary. Compared to eternity, it is just a little while. Now this does not take away from our experience of grief. Knowing that my pain will end as I was going through those procedures did not stop the experience of the pain I was experiencing in that moment. 
having an eternal perspective on our suffering is not supposed to make us stoic people who don't grieve. No, I think actually having an eternal perspective gives an even greater validity to our grief. Because think about it this way. If this world is all there is, then why are we lamenting the way things are? It just is what it is. Get over it. But grief comes from the reality that we feel in our souls that there must be something more than the brokenness of this life. This line of thinking is actually what led the conversion of the famous author C.S. Lewis. You might know him from writing the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've not read the Chronicles of Narnia, please do it this afternoon. Uh, it's one of my favorite books, uh, favorite series. He, he used to be an atheist, partly because one of the reasons why he was an atheist is because he said this world is just so cruel and unjust. But then he began to think some more. May God cause people to think some more. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such a violent reaction against it. A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying that it is nothing but a private idea of my own, but if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world really was unjust not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. There's a lot there, and I'm not going to unpack it all, but essentially what he is saying is that the whole reason he feels this world to be cruel and unjust, the whole reason that he has a sense that things are wrong here is because we aren't fish swimming in water. We aren't unaware that there is anything else. No, we know that this world is not how things are supposed to be. We feel in our souls that there are, is a better way that things should be because God has made us not for this cursed place, but to dwell in the beauty, harmony, and perfection of life with him forevermore. In other words, our very experience of feeling that this world is broken points to the knowledge that there's a world we are made for that is of perfection. And so having a perspective that there's a better eternity to come gives us a validity to grieve even more the brokenness that now is. We don't just throw up our hands and say, it is what it is, get over it. No, we mourn that this is not the way that things are supposed to be. So this, this eternal perspective, it's, it's, really, it's really supposed to be doing two things for us. First, it reminds us that our pain one day will be over. And that when it is, we will look back on what we've been through and we will consider it then as just something we went through for a little while. And then also, it reminds us that we were made for the eternal glory of heaven, which gives us every reason to feel sadness and sorrow now as we lament and grieve the things that happen on earth. So having this perspective, friends, it gives us, it gives us reasons to have joy, even in the midst of 
Sorry. Third, we need to talk about this concept of preciousness. Verse 7 is one that I think is very easy to get wrong. It talks about us suffering things and being tested for our faith. I know that I, for many years, got this wrong, and so we need to, we need to be careful as we go through this. Verse 7 says that there are trials, the hard things that we go through, they, they test us. Now, I used to think that that meant God would put us through hard things to test us and see how much faith we really have in Him. I, I thought suffering was like some kind of divine boot camp. God, God puts us through really hard things. He pushes us to the limit to see if we've got what it takes. But that fails to understand the character of God and who He is. God, God is all-knowing. He, he doesn't need to put us through any kind of test to know who we are. He knows us even better than we know ourselves. He doesn't need to give us an exam to figure out what is inside of us. And so Peter's not talking about some kind of test that God puts us through or some kind of exercise that we need to pass. No, notice he says that we're being tested like gold is tested in fire. When gold is heated, it will melt into liquid, but it will not burn up. You can't burn gold. And so in ancient times, when gold was dug up from the earth and had all kinds of other minerals mixed in with it, the gold would be put in a hot fire. It's actually the same process that happens today to purify the gold. Gold goes into the fire, and all the lesser materials, all the things that, that take away from the gold's value, they're all burned up. That, that is how gold is tested by fire. And the more intense the heat of the flame, and the longer the gold spends in that fire, the more purified, the more precious that gold becomes. Now, we still need to think very carefully about how this analogy is working, because I think we can, we can still get it wrong. I think the idea can be that we have a bunch of messed up stuff in our lives, and so God takes us through suffering in order to burn those things away and make us better people. We look at the phrase, if necessary, and we think that suffering is necessary because God sees something bad in us and says, well, necessary for me to burn that away. But I remember the various times that Angie and I were grieving the poignant moments of losing our children that were in her womb and just thinking, God, you're putting us through this fire because there's something deficient in us? Like, I'd rather be how we were and able to embrace our kids than to receive whatever you're trying to burn up in me. It's not worth it in the cost-benefit analysis. But then I read this passage again a bit more closely and carefully. We have to keep the context of 1 Peter in view here. These people are suffering, why? For their faith. They're being persecuted for being Christians. And so their suffering they were going through was only necessary because they were standing up for Christ. Their suffering did not come because God was doing something to them, but because of what people were doing to them. And so the if necessary here is not a reference to God, but a reference to the reality of living in this broken world that is often hostile to God and therefore can often be hostile to people who follow God. So, so think about it this way. I think what Peter is trying to say is that imagine that you're, you're walking and there are two different paths that you can take. 
One is really wide and open, nice and comfortable. The other is full of thorns and sharp stones and steep inclines. You know going that way will result in you getting hurt. But if the hard path is the path that leads you home, and the comfortable path is the one that only takes you in circles, then because it is necessary, you're going to have to take the hard path. It's not because you're looking forward to the experience. It's not because you're trying to grow through that experience. It's because there's just no avoiding that experience. Friends, there's no avoiding suffering in this world. If you live in this world that is cursed by sin, then at times it's just going to be necessary for you to suffer as a byproduct of living in this broken place. It is a sad but unscapable reality that this world where so many things are wrong, sometimes those wrongs come home to haunt us in very real and horrifying ways. And so in that sense, it is necessary just by living here that at times we're going to experience the hardness of this path that we are on. But as we go through it, it's not like God sees something deficient in us. He's like, I want to send some fire that way. What a cool kind of father that would be. No, as we go through suffering, here's here's what we find. We find what verse 7 promises to be true. What's being tested in us? It's the tested genuineness of your faith. What is this faith that's that's becoming more and more precious to us? Well, we're told exactly what this faith is in verse 8. It's though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. You see, what happens is that when we go through suffering, what we find is that our faith in Jesus is going to become more and more precious to us. You see, these people like us, they hadn't seen Jesus firsthand, but they had heard about him. They had been told about him, and they responded with faith by believing in him and loving him. That's the faith that Peter's talking about in verse 7. And so here's what's going on here. Here's what this is saying to us. There's nothing in this life that can be taken away from us. Rephrase that. Anything in this life can be taken away from us. That's what I meant to say. Anything in this life can be taken away from us, but there's nothing that can be taken away from us in Jesus. In this way, anything in this life can be burnt up but nothing can burn up what we have in Christ. No matter what we go through, no matter what we lose, our faith in him is there because he is there. He doesn't leave us in the fire. He doesn't get burned up like everything else that is lesser. He stays true. And there's safety and comfort and joy to be found by being held in his loving arms. Friends, what this passage is promising to us is that no fire that we go through in life can burn up the joy of the faith we have in Jesus Christ. And in fact, going through the fire will only show us more and more how precious it is to have faith in Jesus. In the Lord of the Rings... Which is one of my favorite books besides the Bible. After you get a Reading Chronicles, not only I read Lord of the Rings. Um, the enemy Sauron is defeated when the ring of power is thrown into the fires of Mount Doom. Sauron had put all of his power, he put all of himself into that ring. It contained everything of him. And so when that ring was burned up, he was destroyed. 
Friends, if we put all of ourselves and all of who we are and all of our hopes and dreams and desires in anything in this world, then our joy is always in danger of being destroyed because nothing in this world lasts. All I have to do is look in the mirror and realize that that's happening. Right? My gray's coming in. Back creaks a little bit when I bend over. I'm not going to last. We're all wasting away. Everything in this world dies at some point. I think every suffering in this world can be linked back to the death of some kind, the loss of some kind. And so we have several options open to us as we go through that painful reality. We can give in to despair, not just grieve, but become depressed and lifeless, hopeless, all of our life can be seen to be lost. Or we can seek to insulate ourselves from suffering and become detached, not give our hearts to anything. I'm not going to risk losing anything because I'm not going to give myself to anything. But in that coldness, our capacity to love becomes atrophied and our hearts become hard like a rock. But what this passage is telling us is that for the Christian, there's another way. We can deeply love other people. We can give our hearts fully. And we can profoundly grieve as we suffer loss. We can lament that this world is not how things are supposed to be. But in our grieving, we can still have joy. Our souls can be still content and at peace, even in the midst of sorrow. Because no matter the loss we suffer, no matter what the fires of this life burn up, the loss of those things are only going to show us how more and more precious is Jesus who can never be burned up. There's a preciousness that comes to our faith in Christ that becomes even more apparent as we see the loss of life. Loss is a necessary part of living in this broken world. But in the loving hands of God, he never allows loss to be the final word. Loss just seeks to remind us more and more of the preciousness of what we have in Jesus. So friends, this is how we experience joy in the midst of sorrow. We consider the prosperity of what we have in Jesus. We view life through the eternal perspective given to us by Jesus. And we embrace even more the preciousness of our faith in Jesus. Oh, we grieve, but we grieve with joy. As we come to a close, I just want to give really three quick ways we can access these things practically in our lives. I think this stuff is too important to just leave as concepts. We need to to know how we can access these concepts and apply them, especially when life becomes faithful, uh, really, really painful. And so I think our text suggests three three applications to us. I'll give them to you quickly. Application one: how, how do we how do we gain access to these concepts? We listen to God's word. We listen to God's. Word. Verse 8 tells us that these people didn't see Jesus, so how did they come to know him? The same way we do, by listening to his word. They heard the scriptures read. They read the scriptures for themselves. They heard the scriptures speak and preach. Friends, this book is not a book of information. It's not a guidebook to give you some good rules for life. This is the place where we see the face of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not a book of information, it's a book of revelation. 
it shows us God in such a way that we experientially come to know God. I'm not saying that every time you open the Bible or listen to a sermon, you're going to have this amazing experience. But God says that his word is to be our daily bread, and a steady diet of this spiritual life will profoundly shape us. In my decades-long battle with Crohn's disease, I've found myself at many times in dark and lonely rooms where my thoughts have taken me to the brink of despair. But I found time and time again that in those moments, God's word gave me life. And to be honest, it was not because I was reading God's word in that moment. Often when I'm in those dark places, I'm too depressed to even open a Bible. But because because by God's grace, I've had a daily habit of saturating myself in God's word. What I did before, God used in that moment that when I was getting squeezed, it's what his word that came out of me. And so my prayer for you, friends, is that when life squeezes you, God's word is what will come out of you. That you be saturating yourself daily in a relationship with God through the word of God. That you be filling yourself up with it. Not the dribble of social media, not the talking pundits on news TVs or podcasts. Oh, how many words we take in on a daily basis that we think, oh, we're just listening to this as fodder. No, friends, they're shaping your life. In this world where words have never been more accessible, how much more we need God's word in our hearts. We need to be shaped by this word. It is this word that leads us to the hope that we have in Christ, the joy that we have in him. We need to listen to God's word. Application number two, we need to praise God. This passage actually does not start in verse six, but in verse three. Verse 3 through 12 actually is one long run-on sentence in the original Greek. And how does verse 3 start? It starts by saying, blessed be God. As we saw last week, another way to translate that is, praise be to God. We saw last week how that, that, that generally means that God wants us to delight ourselves and the joy of knowing him. But there's a practical reality that singing about God is something that God uses to help us do that. The psalmist writes in Psalm 94 verse 19, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Notice, cares are many, but thinking about God's consolations, in other words, the comforts of who God is, cheers his soul. But the psalmist is not just writing that. No, he is singing that. The psalms are all songs. He is singing about the comfort of God. If you know anything about the Psalms, most of them were written, not all, but most of them were written by a man named David. And when David was a boy, he was summoned into the presence of King Saul, who was suffering from depression. And David was a very gifted musician. And what would he do? He would play music, and King Saul's soul would be comforted by the music that he heard. God has just created us to respond to music in extraordinary ways. Ways. I would not consider myself a musician, although I do casually play guitar, emphasis on casually. But, uh, but I don't actually listen to music that much for the fun of it. I know it might really weird some people out, but I'd rather be in a quiet car because my life is full of noise. And so peace and quiet is always a welcome escape. I, I, I don't necessarily think, it, just live in the musical world, but I can tell you that in my darkest moments, it has often been songs 
that I can sing about the truth of who God is that the Lord has used to lift my darkness. I kind of view it like this. God's word is like logs set up for a fire. They're there. They're in place. They will provide the content of the heat. But singing takes those logs and makes them catch on flame. And in some of my deepest moments of despair, I'm so grateful that my wife has often come in to the room and without saying anything, has just put on praise music. That's been literally a lifesaver for me. So listen to God's word, set up those logs, and then sing good songs to put those logs onto flame. God meets us as we sing his praise. Finally, God meets us and reminds us of these concepts of prosperity and, and uh, perspective and preciousness by his word, by singing his praise, and by the fellowship of the church. Suffering is a very isolating experience. So often in our pain, we just, we just don't want to be around anyone. But God says right in the beginning of the Bible that it is not good for us to be alone. We need to be around other people of faith to help us continue to stay strong in our faith. And the Bible calls Christians coming together and sharing our lives with one another, calls it fellowship. This letter was not written to an individual. It was written to a church, meant to be read in the presence of the church. And so as he's, he's talking about these people who are suffering, guess what? They're coming together in their suffering. They're not isolating, they're not retreating, they're not going down to their shore house to be by themselves for a long period of time. No, they're coming together faithfully and consistently as the church to fellowship with one another so that God could meet them in their gathering. Friends, I can't tell you how many times just coming into this place, being with you all, has been a consolation to my weary heart. Final story, about seven years ago, my father-in-law, who I was very close to, tragically died in an unexpected accident. Got the call right up there in my, my uh, office. It was my mother-in-law who was just weeping, confused, not really sure what was going on, I think just disoriented by her pain. Um, she just kept saying, they won't let me see him, they won't let me see him, they won't let me see him. And so I said, why don't you put the paramedics on the phone? And they told me, well, we're not going to let her see him because he is dead. And so I had to break the news to my mother-in-law about what had happened. I had to call my wife and tell her what had happened. I had to call my wife's sister and tell her what had happened. And after making two hours of those phone calls, I just sat in my office and wept. That was Saturday night. I had to preach the next morning. Come to church, not sure how to get through it. Somehow stumble my way through a sermon. No idea what I was speaking on. At the end of the sermon, getting down from my seat. As you know, we sing songs here at the end. And uh, I just lost it. Just weeping in my seat. And I'm not even sure if you're... It's not going to be helpful if I lose right now. So... Um, uh, I'm not even sure if he remembers this, but as I was weeping, my friend Joe came and just, just sat next to me and put his arm around me. 
He didn't give me a bunch of words because I didn't need words. I needed presence. I need to feel God's love. And often God makes his love felt through the presence of God's people. See, pain wants to isolate us. But friends, I think it's an evil trick of Satan to take us away when what we need actually is to most press in. There is power in being together as the church in the midst of each other's presence. And so as we bring this plane in for a landing, friends, life contains suffering. Suffering that needs to be grieved. But because of Jesus, there is joy to be experienced even as we grieve. He is the one who, whatever our lot, can teach us to say, it is well. Because of the prosperity that we have in him. Because of the perspective that he gives us. Because of the preciousness of the faith in him. Then through reading his word and through singing his praise and through being with his people, we can say, it is well. Whatever my lot, it is well with my soul. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?